I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Polls are going to go up and down in two years away from an election. We have work to do. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. After eight years, Justin Trudeau is not worth the cost. Our question, if a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? What's pushing you to switch parties? My concerns with Pierre Polyev are his embrace of right-wing politics. Many conservatives right now, I find myself wondering who really I should vote for. We need some economic changes. I think that Pierre has uh, the best ideas. Justin Trudeau has basically choked us to the point where we... You know, how much higher are we going to jack the interest rate? I never really considered myself a party member on either side. Provincially, federally, I've never consistently voted for the same party. When I posted this week's topic on social media, a number of people seemed annoyed, wondering why would we ask about federal party support when there's no reason to believe an election is imminent? How how is that relevant? Well, here's the answer. This is a program where we try to tap into conversations that are going on across the country. And something is happening in federal politics. A series of credible polls respected by people who study and analyze politics suggest there has been a significant shift in Canada. The consensus currently is that the Conservative Party of Canada has the support of about 40% of the electorate and the Liberal Party around 27%. So why are allegiances, at least right now, shifting? Our question, if a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? What's pushing you to switch parties? And in the back half, no AMA today, we have a full second topic. Two conflict resolution experts answer caller questions about some of the difficult conversations they're having about the Israel-Hamas war. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Check Up, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from November 19th, 2023. And before we get to calls, we're going to get a picture of the political polling that's out there right now. According to an online poll by Leger, commissioned by the Canadian press this past week, two-thirds of Canadians have a negative impression of the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And the latest polling results from Abacus Data have the Conservative Party with 40% support nationally, and a 13-point lead ahead of the Liberal Party. That would put the Conservatives in a position to likely win a majority if the results held in an election. David Coletto is a pollster, and he's the CEO of Abacus Data. His company has its own polling out last week on the federal political picture, and we've reached him in Ottawa today. Hi, David. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Good. So according to the polls, the Conservatives uh, started trending up, the Liberals down, probably starting last May. What would you say is is driving this? Well, I think two things. One is we have seen over the course of a year some of the other questions we ask um, trending downwards for the government, government's approval rating, how people feel about the prime minister, and a general sense of how the country's doing, which, which is a question we ask, you know, do you think the country's headed in the right direction? Or is it off on the wrong track? Those have been trending downwards consistently, but not rapidly over the course of the year. Um, But 
but I think it was at the end of the spring into the summer. Um, and it, I think it actually corresponded with the July interest rate increase by the Bank of Canada that really started to move people from kind of the status quo that has been in place for a year in terms of how they say they would vote to one in which the Conservatives were increasingly gaining a lead and the Liberal vote numbers were falling back. So I think a lot of this has to do with fatigue towards uh, the government and the ac economic situation, particularly as it relates to inflation and interest rates. So as of now, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has said that he will be running in the next election. What does the polling tell us about whether the Liberal Party would be better to uh, go into that election with someone else's leader? Well, the evidence actually isn't that clear. Um, on the one hand, about one in three Canadians who aren't currently supporting the Liberals say they would be more likely to vote Liberal if the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, wasn't the leader of the Liberal Party. On the other hand, um, when we've done any research and other polling firms have done research on any of the alternatives to Mr. Trudeau, um, there's not a lot of clarity there. People don't really uh, know many of the names that that we share. Um, many can't name a cabinet minister beyond Minister Freeland. And so it's really hard to estimate how people are going to react to someone um, or a change if, if they don't know really who they are. But one of the things we do know is how people feel about the prime minister. Um, that's solidified certainly over time. It's become increasingly negative. And so for the Liberal Party to decide and for the prime minister to decide that, it's really about which is riskier, keeping the prime minister or looking for a change that that also uh, has comes with it a lot of risk as well. Yeah, you mentioned your own recent polling on uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's uh, leadership and how people feel about that. The number, I think, uh, 58% of the country has a negative impression of the Prime Minister, according to your polling. And, uh, and, and I know you touched on it, but let me ask you this specifically. Is, is this the case of... Uh, you know, an unpopular leader, or is it just the fatigue you see when you're leading a party that's been in power for eight years? Well, that 58% is the highest we've ever registered since we've been tracking views on the prime minister or, or as he was before he was liberal leader, before he became prime minister. And in, yeah, in that re a recent survey we did, we asked people who had a negative view, is this more about not liking him as a person or is this about just being tired of him? And for almost six in 10 of those who have a negative view, it's fatigue. Um, you know, as to your point, this is a government that's been in power for eight years. Um, we saw the prime minister a lot. He was overexposed, perhaps, during the pandemic when he was out there briefing us every day. And with all governments, I don't think this is uh, anything specific to the liberal government right now. Uh, people just want change at some point. And so I think uh, Mr. Trudeau, the liberal government is is in constant um, in battle in a way with that fatigue. And it's not because they everybody just all of a sudden said, I hate the guy. It's because they're just perhaps a little sick of seeing him around. We're here live with David Coletto, a pollster and head of Abacus Data. And our question today, if a federal election were to occur today, would you vote differently? What's pushing you to switch parties? And you can take part in the program by calling one of these numbers, 1-888-416-8333 if you'd like to be on the air. You can also text us if you'd like to just send a comment at 226-758-8924. Uh, David, in your most recent poll, the Conservatives were leading in all age categories, and that includes younger voters. So let's talk about that demographic for a moment. Were you surprised? Well, I'm not surprised now because we've seen this happen for the last few months. But if, Ian, you had you'd talked to me six months ago or a year ago and said the Liberal Party of Canada is going to be more popular among older voters than it is among younger voters, I would have said 
do another poll. That data's <laughs> wrong. There's something wrong happening because we know young people have been fundamental to the liberal success over the last three elections. And so when we're seeing consistent polling that says actually one of the groups that is most dissatisfied with the government's performance with the prime minister is young people, um, I think it, it merits asking why. And I think it comes down to two big issues. One is housing and the other is the general cost of living. When you look at those who either rent or uh, you know own and have seen their mortgage rates go up, uh, they are the most um, anxious about the state of the economy, about their own future. And I think rightly or wrongly, many of them blame the prime minister. Um, and that's the perception that exists. And so in the absence of any hope or feeling that it's gonna get better, th those younger Canadians who were essential to the liberal success right now are, are looking for an alternative and Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives um, are, are getting that look right now. And David, one last question. We will get this answer from a couple of political analysts, one uh, aligned with the Liberals, one aligned with the Conservatives. But from a pollster standpoint, I mean, the Liberals have overcome deficits in the polls in the last two elections and ended up winning. Uh, based on the numbers you're seeing now, are they in a different position? They really are. Um, you know, the prime minister's numbers aren't, has never been this bad. Uh, the government's approvals hasn't been this bad. But it doesn't mean there isn't a path back for the liberals. There isn't a, a way in which they can win. And no one, uh, no one should predict how an election two years from now, even a year from now, even six months from now might play out. But one of the things that I think has to change is people's perceptions about the direction of the country. They've got to feel more confident. Uh, that their own life's going to get a little bit easier, that the economy is going to improve, that that their cost of living is going to go down. If those things don't change, or if people don't uh, increasingly feel that the Conservatives are not an acceptable alternative, I think it's going to be very hard for the Liberals to, to you know, come back for the third time and win uh, another election. So we'll see. David, really nice hearing the numbers and also hearing your analysis of them. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Ian. Take care. David Coletto, a pollster and CEO of Abacus Data. Now, before we go to calls, and of course, our number here, if you'd like to take part in the program, is one 888 Let's uh, introduce two guests who will be with us for the rest of the hour to answer questions and provide some context. Tyler Meredith, former economic advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He worked on the party's election platforms in 2019 and 2021, and he's a founding partner of Meredith Boston Cool, a policy-based public affairs firm. And Jason Leader is a conservative strategist and the president of the public affairs firm Enterprise Canada. He worked with former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and former Ontario Premier Mike Harris. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. Hey, yeah. Tyler, as you heard, we just spoke uh, with David Coletto about uh, the polls. Why do you think the Liberals are facing such a deficit right now? Well, look, I, I think David's overall diagnosis is correct. It's been a very difficult macroeconomic backdrop for, frankly, any incumbent government across the Western world. Joe Biden is facing the same challenges. Uh, and and the, the path forward here is going to be with, with leadership that's able to show that they are doing things on the side of people's household budgets and in the best interests of middle-class Canadians. And that has typically been an area where this government has actually done very well, um, but they've hit a rough patch in part because they've been pulled, I think, in a number of different directions with different crises, and they've not been able to focus with as consistent a message about what they are doing to help people in a way that Pierre Polyev actually has in the past uh, two years, because he's been relentless in pursuing a message about trying to improve affordability. 
And Jason, uh, Polyev has been able to attract, as we just heard from David, uh, a lot of young voters that haven't uh, traditionally voted for the Conservatives. So that must make Conservatives feel pretty good. But if an election is is a year away, especially if it's two years away, is there concern within the party that that support among younger people might be vulnerable to, to shift? Well, Mr. Trudeau's, you know, he's pulled the last two elections out of the fire, right? Uh, and he's, he's, you know, looked like he was like, you know, sort of on the rocks, let's say, in the last two elections, he's been able to pull those two out of the fire. So there's no chance that they're, until, until the election's done, until Mr. Poliev is sworn in as prime minister, conservatives will be nervous because um, we've got reason to be nervous. I will say this, it looks a lot different than it's looked in the past. Number one, for some of the reasons that David's talked about, it looks a lot more durable. Number one, and the, the first reason like is Mr. Trudeau, but the second one is Mr. Poliev, and both of them have a have a part to play. Mr. Trudeau, listen, eight to nine to 10 years in, people get tired of you. And I, we'll talk over the course of the hour about, about why some of that might be and why he's probably a lot worse off than he was worse, you know, a couple years ago or four years ago or six years ago, but he's in a lot worse position than he was before. The Conservatives are in a lot better position, right? Mr. Mr. Poliev looks younger. He looks fresher. He looks like he's got better ideas. His social media looks better. His ideas are more sort of easy to understand. Mr. Trudeau sort of speaks in paragraphs. Mr. Mr. Poliev speaks in bullet points. And so those are the reasons why not only young people, but sort of every demographic, uh, you know, Mr. Trudeau, we might say he's doing well amongst older people, for example, but he's still losing amongst older people. And he's got to start to turn that around against amongst younger people, amongst women, amongst a bunch of different demographics. He's got a really tall order. And if he was able to win the next election, it would be a miracle of epic proportions. Jason, imagine how these comments are landing among our listeners across the country, uh, depending on which party they support and depending how they feel about their vote. And we invite them to take part in the conversation at 1-888-416-8333. We're live here on Cross Country Checkup. And our question is, if a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? What's pushing you to switch parties? Now, Tyler, this is a tricky question to ask someone who still has affiliation with a party, but I will ask it and I'm sure you can adeptly handle it. Do you think the Liberals would fare better in the next election with a different leader? I don't know. And I, I think, frankly, it's premature for anyone to be asking that question, in part because, as you uh, noted, I think, in your interview with David, the government has come back uh, and the prime minister has come back very effectively. Justin Trudeau loves to be counted out. He loves to be uh, looked at as the underdog. That's when he's at his best. And what's interesting, um, you know, in it, uh, which I don't think David got to in his in his discussion there, but if you ask the question, if the threat of Pierre Polyev forming government is real, how, how would you vote? About 50% of Canadians either say that they're committed to voting Liberal today or are open to the idea of switching their vote to stop Pierre Polyev from becoming Prime Minister. And so I think part of the question is obviously going to be, are you mad enough and fed up enough and tired enough with Justin Trudeau by the time we get to the next election? But the other question, and the other question that Mr. Polyev has to overcome, is ultimately, is he an acceptable choice for as large enough a coalition of Canadians that can elect him as prime minister. And I don't know that he's closed the deal yet. And Jason, before we go to calls, let me ask you about that. It's one thing for a pollster to ask people when there is no election imminent who you support. It's another thing when the stakes are high, that the person you actually vote for, the party you vote for, will you hope have consequences as to who forms the next government. So, uh, Jason, what do you think about the, the you know, Tyler's suggestion that when there actually is an election and people actually are considering whether, whether Pierre Polyev should be the next prime minister, um, they may step back from supporting the Conservatives. 
Yeah, listen, I'm a, I'm, I grew up on a farm, uh, Ian, and, uh, you know, the harvest isn't in the barn until the barn door is shut. You know? So <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, um, uh, you know, there's no, no doubt that obviously that, that could happen again. It feels a lot different though. I'll just say like, you know, I, I played hockey this morning, you know, a couple of guys, you know, in the hockey dressing room, man, it's time for that guy to go. That's not the kind of stuff that you heard a couple of years ago, right? You're at a dinner party. People are like just shaking their heads at social media, um, you know, Mr. Trudeau. Now he can turn that around for goodness sakes. He's got a lot of different strategies available to him. Um, goodness knows, like what if he started dating somebody in January? You don't know how any of this stuff is going to play. You don't know what's going to happen over the next two years. But I will say that the fundamentals look pretty bad for Mr. Trudeau. And the reason why they look so badly is he's doing very poorly amongst women. He has to win a huge advantage among women. He's essentially politically dead amongst men and certainly middle-aged men who aren't seniors and young men. And, and for him to do really well in the next election campaign, he has to have a huge lead amongst women. That's the way he consolidated his majority or his wins the last couple of times. And, and that's where he's really falling. So I expect him to focus on that, Ian, but he just it just looks and feels different. And he's going with a lot of scar tissue and he's coming from a place where, of political weakness that we haven't seen Mr. Trudeau have to dig his way out of before. Boy, Jason, at the beginning of that answer, you managed to invoke growing up on a farm and playing hockey earlier today. The only thing you didn't talk about is a double-double to have, like, the perfect soundbite for it. But anyway, right. great uh, great Canadian examples. We're going to come back to both of you um, throughout the hour. You're, you've been kind enough to stay with us. I'm going to go to calls in a moment, but uh, just to let our audience know, Tyler Meredith, a liberal strategist who was, up until last year, an advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau, and Jason Leader is a conservative strategist who worked with politicians like former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He also grew up on a farm and he also played hockey earlier today. So, I mean, you know, that's uh, all those all pretty good credentials. Uh, Before I go to calls, let me take a look at what's happening on social media. Rosemary Green on uh, what used to be Twitter, what now is called X says, I've always voted liberal and will continue to do so whenever the next election is called, hopefully not until 2025. They have implemented difficult policies like carbon pricing. We risk losing it all with Pierre Polyev. Uh, George... Uh, Zlopowski via Aircheck from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan says, I will be voting the same. There's a saying here that goes, liberals don't care because they know it's a vote. They'll never win. Keep in mind, he is in Saskatchewan. Conservatives care even less because they know it's a vote they'll never lose. So I'll vote NDP like I always do. And James Wooten uh, via X slash Twitter, I voted for the Liberals in the very first federal election that I was able to vote in, in 1993, having become a Canadian citizen the previous year. I have voted for the Liberals ever since and will continue to do so. There is no possibility, no possibility that I will change my vote. I'm Ian Hanamansing. We are live on Cross Country Checkup from CBC Vancouver, and our number is 1 888 416 8333. And Douglas Peer is calling from Edmonton. Hi, Douglas. Oh, hi, Ian. Uh, I didn't grow up on a farm. <laughs> okay. Well, you know what? You can still in take fact, part in the program. Up, in fact, where I grew up, a couple of blocks away, uh, was a library. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh, we, live in a, we live in a liberal democracy, and we have for, oh, I don't know. 100 years. Uh, and I vote based on political philosophy. Now, obviously, there are sometimes certain uh, politicians I'm, I'm not crazy about. But at the end of the day, I vote political, uh, political philosophy. Mm-hmm. Liberalism is a philosophy. Conservatism is a philosophy. Social, demo- democracy, uh, social Democrats are a philosophy. And that's how I vote. Uh, all the rhetoric and the talking points and the 
basically hair polyev, it's just sound bites. Uh, <laughs> but this select, this, if, if there was an election today, and whenever there is one in a year from now, I'm definitely not voting liberal. Uh, and uh, I certainly wouldn't vote conservative. Mm-hmm. It's no, it's no secret that conservatives have always been against organized labor. And that's just weird to me. And Why so, just an so I understand, worker would vote conservative. But anyway, yeah. So you 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 mentioned Douglas that you vote uh, based on uh, political your analysis of political philosophy, you know, political perspective. So have you been traditionally an NDP supporter, and that will continue for you? Well, what's interesting is uh, uh, the federal liberals, Trudeau's liberals, they really need the voters that move between liberal and NDP. Mm-hmm. They need those voters. And I think they're going to lose a big chunk of them because of their foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, I've written, not an email, because I know what happens to those. I've written a hard copy letter to Justin Trudeau, and I wrote one to our ambassador to the UN, uh, Bob Ray. And I pointed out the facts that we all agree on, like the earth is not flat, uh, foreign policy, uh, international law, the Geneva Conventions, international humanitarian law is very mm-hmm. plainly written. So I pointed that all out, but I asked them, what is Canada's foreign policy? Because I thought I knew it. I don't know it any longer because it doesn't seem to conform with the treaties that we've signed. Okay. Uh, so this whole Palestine-Israeli thing, and this didn't start on October 7th. This has been ongoing for years, and, right. and the media I consume, one of the medias I consume, they cover it constantly, mm-hmm. and that's Democracy Now! out of New York. And uh, so I know, and, and plus, you know, like I said, there's a library just in walking right. distance. So I know what the history is there, yeah. and to watch what's going on in Gaza, mm-hmm. and to listen to the Prime Minister of Canada, I'm appalled. Okay. All right, Douglas, we're, we're, getting, we're getting lots of calls. So interesting yep. to hear what uh, is motivating your vote. I'm still not clear on one thing. So if I could get maybe a, a quick question from me, quick answer from you. Um, so will, like, who did you, like, are you, would you be changing your vote or are you voting in the next election the I same way you going, voted I, in the last election? I was going to, uh, I was going to uh, donate a substantial sum to the Liberal Party mm-hmm. this coming election. I was going to vote liberal. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do neither based on elementary moral principles. Okay. Like, and, and, and foreign policy being the, the key driver of that right now. Well, when there's something that supersedes basic elementary uh, okay. uh, 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 principles, like when you're okay and you do nothing about 5,000 children being slaughtered, and the interesting thing about the, the Genocide Convention is it's not only you're supposed to act, you're supposed to act to prevent it. Yeah. You, you know, I'm not... sitting on their hands, and yeah. wow, they've emulated foreign uh, policy out of Washington. Always okay. a bad idea. <laughs> so, Douglas, thank you for your call. And, uh, of course, in the second hour of Cross Country Checkup today, we're going to be talking about, uh, with two people throughout the hour, who have a lot of experience in uh, dealing with uh, difficult conversations about uh, the Israel-Hamas uh, uh, conflict. And uh, so... Yeah, that'll be uh, coming up, an opportunity to talk about uh, 
uh, how you approach, uh, you know, what can be a very difficult uh, topic. But this hour, we're talking about elections and uh, political support. And let's go to Woodstock, New Brunswick. Aaron Buma has called us up. Hi, Aaron. Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, I would, uh, are you considering changing your political support, your vote from last time around? No, I'm, I've always been conservative and I, and I definitely, I'm involved with the party and I'm, a, I'm a military historian and I'm a, and I'm an active, I'm an autism activist and, and I'm also, but I've always been very connected and, uh, with the conservative party and, mm-hmm. uh, I'm part of, uh, the team. So I, I believe that, uh, right now I, I see Justin Trudeau has made a lot of different claims and a lot of, uh, Virtue signaling, but it, but promises have not been kept. It just the promises have not been kept. Now another billion dollars has been cut from the defense budget, yeah. and it's yeah, it's but, it's kind of difficult times right now. Everything's so expensive. It's, but I guess in hard. in your situation, that doesn't really matter anyway, though, right? I guess by your own description, you've uh, been a solid uh, conservative supporter, conservative voter. So whether things were going well or not going well, you're kind of committed to voting conservative. Yeah, I, I'm I'm committed. I mean, it's but I, I'm a progressive conservative. I listen to both sides and I hear concerns, and I bring concerns of, with my party up to to people in my party, and I'm mm-hmm. like concerned about this or concerned about that. And then, of course, um, but um, certainly this time around, it seems like there's been a lot of concern, definitely, on what Justin Trudeau has been doing or what he has not been doing, mm-hmm. and I've seen that. Uh, but I'm always uh, a person that's also you know, able to listen to the other side and, and think objectively, okay, this is yeah. what we can do better, and this is what they're not doing better. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to hear from some people, I'm sure, who are, you know, vote red, vote blue, vote orange, vote, uh, you know, one way all the time, no matter what is going on. So that's, uh, you know, interesting to hear that perspective as well. Let's go from Woodstock, New Brunswick, all the way to almost where I'm sitting. Uh, Simone Jones is in Surrey, British Columbia. Hi, Simone. Hi, Ian. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Yeah, you're very welcome. And so how are you feeling about uh, who you support politically, and, and is it changing? So it's not changing. I voted Liberal last time. I will definitely vote Liberal next time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not necessarily a diehard a Liberal supporter. I'm in the center. And um, I have pulled away from conservatives for a considerable amount of time because they keep pulling those of us uh, in the center to the far right. And I think what's happening right now in the surgeon polls, we're seeing the PPC um, followers. They're going back into the fold with conservatives because that's who um, Pierre Polyevsa is catering to. Um, his anti-trans reg- rhetoric is not going to help me put food on the table. Um, and I also believe that a lot of Canadians don't necessarily understand a lot of the things that Trudeau has done. And I think once they... Once they understand, like, for example, the carbon tax, it's been entirely misrepresented in the media. The fact that um, Pierre Polyevola keeps saying axe the tax, well, it's a revenue neutral tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and once people start realizing that, once people in B.C. realize that has absolutely nothing to do with us, doesn't have a solution, they don't have a climate change solution um, economically, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has been doing a lot for us as well. And I, and I just think there, there's... So much going on that when things start to settle, he may not necessarily get a a majority next election, but I think a lot of people just simply won't change 
the support they did last election. So, Simone, one last question before I move on, and we, we do, are getting a lot of calls now. The, um, is it that you, you are motivated primarily by supporting the Liberals or motivated primarily by, you know, your, your discomfort with what you believe Pierre Polyev stands for? It's actually uh, a little bit of both, but it's more uh, Pierre Polyevre is exceptionally unlikable. And I believe he's a kind of a shiny new toy for a lot of people. And once they actually get to know him, they won't be able to vote for him. Um, okay. Just go watch this, this hour of 22 minutes. They've, their, their depiction of him are priceless, and it's so accurate. He's, he's just horrible human being. I hate to say it like well, that. Okay, Simone, thank you very much for uh, for calling. Thank and you. I'm sure people who are listening, some will have a stopwatch. How long do we give uh, people who are supporting the Liberals? How long are we giving people who support the Conservatives? How do I jump in when somebody says that somebody's unlikable? My strategy here is going to be to more or less um, kind of go through his calls as quickly as I can and uh, and let people express their opinions and, and uh, just give you a sense of what people out there are saying. Before we go back to calls, of which we have many, let uh, let me uh, quickly check in with our panel once again. And first to Jason Leader, a conservative strategist who's worked with politicians like the former prime minister, Stephen Harper. Jason, what about that notion we heard from Simone that, uh, you know, she considers Pierre Polyev to be unlikable? I mean, everybody's going to have their, their view. The problem for people like Simone and, you know, trying to pull the politics out of it is about two thirds of Canadians think that about Trudeau. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's the problem that, you know, people who support Trudeau has got is that, is that after all these years, he's built up a ton of scar tissue. She raised the carbon tax and, you know, this is a, this is a tough one, right? She, you, so, you know, you're in BC right now. She, I think she was calling from BC. Mm-hmm. BC's had a carbon mm-hmm. tax for 20 years. This sort of idea that once they explain it better, things are going to, the problem with, you know, once they explain it better is they've been trying to explain it for seven or eight years. And the truth is, um, the media and economists and everybody's been mostly on board with the carbon tax for you know seven or eight years. The problem is for the last year, people have been sort of like at the beginning, the carbon tax was like this thing that really needed it needed to be done and it was so important and it was going to save the environment. So that was not the first sort of thing. Then it was it's no big deal, it's revenue neutral. Understood. I understand how all the economics work, like I understand the the rebates, all of that kind of stuff. People didn't really believe it, but you know, that was the second sort of swap at it. Well, now, Mr. Trudeau. This thing that he said was the most important thing in environmental policy, the thing that was going to save us, that was actually going to save the earth or that was going to put us on that track, he's reversed course on fuel oil. He's 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 had to improve his subsidies to rural Canada. And I think when people like sort of like swing voters who aren't maybe as strong for the conservatives as me or as as strong for the liberals as your last caller look at it and they're like, he'll compromise anything right now. Like this is the thing that he said was the most important and he reversed course. And they sort of look at, they saw him in the last couple of months, look down ashen face and sort of say, I've got to change course on this thing. And so that's when governments start to fall apart. When they mm-hmm. start to like compromise their, their, their core beliefs, their core business, their core sort of, you know, what's in here. I think a lot of people saw that with Mr. Trudeau a couple of times over the last year. And that's one of the reasons why he's at 22, 25%, not at 35, 40%. All right, Jason, thank you. And of course, we will continue to come back uh, to you over the next 20 minutes or so. Tyler Meredith is also on our panel, a liberal strategist who was up until last year an advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau. I don't have a specific question for you, Tyler, but just weigh in on, on what we're talking about right now. 
Well, I'd say two things in reaction to the couple of calls that we've heard so far. The first is it's actually a reminder that a lot of people, uh, when they vote in the next election, they are likely going to vote for the same party that they voted for in the past. The number of people who switch parties in the course of an election is actually very small, but it's hugely determinative, right? And so the reason that we're talking today about um, the political environment having been substantially changed is because effectively 7% of people have moved from the liberal camp to the conservative camp in some measure. That's 7%. It's not it's not 70%, it's 7%. And so, um, and, and so it, it gives you a vastly different uh, view of what the overall environment is. And I think potentially that could change over the next couple of uh, over the next couple of months and years. The other thing I'll say is I think it is true, and we see it a little bit in some of these comments from callers, is that over the last year in particular, Justin Trudeau's negatives have gone up and Pierre, uh, Pierre Polyev's positives have gone up as well. And so the combination of those two things gives you a very different impression of those two leaders. And if the prime minister is going to have a shot in the next election, his negatives have to come down and Pierre's, uh, Pierre's negatives have to go up. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Tyler. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing, live in Vancouver on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and other CBC platforms. Our phone number is one 416 If a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? And what's pushing you to switch parties? Alex Moeste is in Calgary. Hi, Alex. Hi, Anne. Are you considering changing your uh, vote or political support? Absolutely. From what to what? Uh, from the liberals to the conservatives. And why, Alex? Um, I think Pierre Polyev's um, housing policy is very clear. Um, I am so I'm under age of forty, and um, I still believe in the Canadian dream, which is on home ownership. Um, I think uh, Pierre Polyev's policy. Um, um, giving more, um, basically less bureaucracy and having uh, the cities uh, be able to build more homes for Canadians is a very um, an attractive, very, very attractive policy. And uh, very, he's, he's very articulate in the way he says the numbers, like 10% more homes to be built um, in each city, uh, which is going to basically mean lower prices for homes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, actually, a year ago, I moved from Ottawa to Calgary just because I couldn't buy a home in Ottawa. So I still haven't bought a home in Calgary here, but I'm hoping to buy a home in the future in the next maybe one year or two. And um, I, I don't think, uh, like, it wasn't my choice to come to Calgary, I, I, even though I like the city, nothing really um, against the, the Alberta and Calgary. I love the, the place already, but um, I shouldn't have to move to be able to buy a home. So I, I think there is something Canadians are, that is not being talked about in Canada here. People talk about immigration and people think it's like people coming from outside Canada coming to Canada, which is, which is totally fine. But also people who are in Canada like me, we are actually forced to migrate to other places. I think people can say, oh, migration is normal. It's a, it's a normal phenomenon. It's a, it can be, you know, but I don't think this is really normal because a lot of young people have to move from places they love mm-hmm. to just to move to places where they can afford. And so, so Alex, 
if if Pierre Polyev fulfills his promise uh, to voters like you by changing the housing market, how will you, like, what's the measure you're going to use to determine whether he has fulfilled that promise? In other words, is it that housing prices will, because you're going to buy a house in the next year, so that's almost certainly going to be before the next election. So uh, uh, Justin Trudeau will still be the prime minister. So what are you expecting Pierre Polyev to do in terms of, I guess, housing prices probably, right? Uh, there, there is also uh, other costs associated with owning a home, heating, mm-hmm. heating costs. Um, uh, you're talking about the mortgage uh, interest rates, right. which go in hand, hand in hand with home ownership. So all of these, um, if you look at even the Canadian dollar, uh, you know, the, the, the Canadian dollar is now like 72 cents or 73 cents. Um, in 2015, when Trudeau came to power, it was 76, around 76 cents uh, per U.S. dollar. So the, the Canadian dollar has lost value really significantly. It's affecting um, everyday life. Uh, grocery is going up. Right. Uh, but home prices, uh, Pierre Polyev, um, from what I, I remember, he's promised um, about 10 to 15 percent um, in every municipal, in, in every city to give uh, the cities a uh, permits or I think there is some sort of grants that are going to be given and um, each city is going to have like targets, uh, 10 to 15 percent more permits to build more homes, Mm -hmm. um, affordable homes. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right, Alex, thank you very much for calling and thank you very much for explaining why uh, you find uh, Pierre Polyev an attractive candidate and why you'll be, or if you, right now anyway, thinking that you'll switch your vote to him. Let's uh, go to uh, Basil Houtman, who is here in Vancouver. Hi, Basil. Hi, Ed. So I see uh, the Thanks no- for your uh, guests for coming, willing to come to the program and, and share their informed ideas. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, great guests. Uh, and, and so you, um, I see in the notes here, would vote differently if there were an election today from last time. Why the switch? Well, I don't think, I think really some pretty F on the Conservatives lost in the last election is they really didn't say or wasn't concerned or didn't share any concerns about the environment. And um, whereas Trudeau did. He was. He is concerned and still concerned, but I would re- want to go further than that because I don't think either parties uh, really care that much. They talk a lot. Pierre talks a lot about it, but he's better than uh, Polyev, obviously, uh, far more. I mean, even nowadays, he's not saying much about the environment when she wants to do away with uh, uh, projects that are helping the environment. Mm-hmm. So. Definitely not him. I think he's a dangerous man to have, uh, even more than any other uh, leader we've had in Canada. So uh, I would vote for a party that I think does concern about the environment because of, of all the other issues, every other issue in the world, there's nothing as important as the environment. The wildfires, the, the, the floods, the really mm-hmm. hot weather we've had, and the higher levels of water, the ocean levels. Yeah are far more important and dangerous than anything else that can happen in the world. And if we don't do everyone willing to sacrifice something about to, towards having a better environment, a better world for everyone in the world, including all our animal friends, yeah. the only party I can see that is concerned is the Green Party. But that. Basil, so that's where but, I would put my vote. 
but Basil, given your concerns, I mean, we were, many people would describe where we were during the last election campaign as being in a climate crisis, but you didn't vote green last time? Well, I thought uh, Trudeau was, um, it seemed like he was more concerned than any other leaders. And I thought the Green Party, uh, I figured I should put my vote where it's going to count. But now I think it's just going, I've got to change my vote. I've got to put where where I feel we we, we need to do. So even though the Green Party may not do well, because people are still not concerned, they're much more concerned about their pocket money than they are about the environment, which can influence their children and grandchildren more than anything else we do in the world. I've got to change my vote. I've got to put where my heart is, even though they may not do that well, unfortunately. Basil, thanks for the call. Yeah, thanks, Ian, for the program. If a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? What is pushing you to switch parties? one 416 is our number. Uh, Shuvro Ghosh, or Gosh, I guess. Suvro Gosh is in Ottawa. Hi, Suvro. Shuvro. Hi, uh, it's Ghosh. It is Ghosh? Okay, thank you. I just, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so are you, if there were an election uh, about to happen, would you change your vote from last time? Yes, I would vote differently. However, I'm I'm a little bit uh, confused, though. Okay. Uh, whom to whom to vote? I would say why why I would vote differently first. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel one of the primary problem which I feel current government uh, faces is never answers questions effectively. Even when journalists ask questions, uh, they just never answer it. Uh, effectively, it's always just roundabout, roundabout, going around, and there's this uh, patronizing approach, especially by Christia Freeland, has this patronizing approach towards uh, whenever answering questions, uh, which makes me feel like, am I an idiot? I don't understand. I do understand. I follow news. And, uh, so that, that, these are the reasons why I wouldn't vote the current, uh, wouldn't uh, bring the liberals back. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't vote NDP because, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, uh, Mr. Jagmeet is like very busy with foreign country problems and uh, all of that. Uh, doesn't seem like enough uh, interested in in local uh, or in in-house problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, conservatives highly considering it, but like with the last uh, what. Basil was saying, uh, uh, Mr. Basil, I, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Yes, you are. Uh, yeah, was saying that the climate po- uh, uh, policies of uh, conservatives, uh, I see pure bashing liberals on carbon tax, on recently when, he, uh, when, they, uh, when the plastic pollution, uh, that thing was overturned by mm-hmm. federal, uh, federal court. Uh, he's, he's taking advantage of these things, but I, I, I'm yet to see what smarter solutions do you have? Yeah, I uh, love hearing your analysis, Shuvro, and it's complica- complex. And uh, yeah. but, but, you know, at the end of the day, where does that leave you? Uh, that leads me like I... I <laughs> that leads me uh, that I may end up with a conservative, uh, mm-hmm. not with full-heartedly, but with like, Okay, seventy percent they are good, uh, but I am thirty. Uh, ideally, I would also go to. I want to go to uh, Green Party, but I would be strategic and go with Conservatives. All right, thank you very much for your call. No problem. 
And just to let our panel know, I'm going to come to you both in just a moment. Uh, Particularly, I'm curious about following up on uh, Alex, the caller from Calgary. But let me uh, go through some of our online reaction. Uh, Shannon Yip Choi via AirCheck contacted us from Peterborough, Ontario. I have always voted liberal, though if the federal progressive conservative still existed, I would likely lean more that way now. All told, come the next election, I'll likely plug my nose and vote for a conservative government. Polyev scares me, but Trudeau and the Liberals have lost my confidence. Francis Frith texts from Vancouver Island, in a perfect world, Trudeau would bow out and the Liberals would have already groomed his successor who would give a chance of maintaining power. And M. Hannock emails us from Kelowna, I would definitely vote differently. I voted conservative since Trudeau became leader of the Liberals as a totally unqualified candidate. However, with Polyev, I'll vote Liberal even with Trudeau. Also, the Liberals handled the pandemic quite well. I did not see that uh, email ending the way that it did based on the way it began. All very interesting. And we have about 10 minutes left. Let me go back to our panel, uh, Tyler Meredith, liberal strategist, and Jason Leiter, a conservative strategist. And as I mentioned, I'm kind of curious about Alex's call. So he's the gentleman from Calgary who moved from Ottawa because he wants to get a house. Uh, He talked about, you know, the, the dollar was higher when Justin Trudeau became Prime Minister, it's lower now. He talked about the interest rates being higher now. uh, And he talked about 10 to 15% more housing that's going to be built under Polyev. And uh, maybe Tyler, I'll be... Well, no, actually, you know what, uh, Jason, I'll begin with you. Um, It's one thing to make promises to get in power. It's another thing to deliver on them. Do you worry at all when you hear a caller like that who... Um, will expect, I guess, Prime Minister Polyev, if that were to come to pass, um, to have influence on the exchange rate and on the interest rates, things that he really won't have direct uh, influence on. Uh, do you want the real answer, Ian? I'm going to give you the real answer. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't worry about those things. And Tyler and I are friends. We've, we, you know, we know each other outside of outside of this. And I'll just say that's a that's a that's a day one problem in PMO versus a campaign <laughs> problem. Right. And so, you know, that might be a cynical way of of describing it. I'm I'm sure that you know there'll be a few callers making fun of that. But I trust me that it's how both parties think about this. Is you got to win the election before you can govern. Doesn't mean that the things are too are divorced from one another. It doesn't mean that the things that you promise and talk about aren't the things that are, are your priorities. But I'll just say this, it's probably going to be enough um, before the, between now and the next election campaign for Mr. Polyev and Mr. Singh, for that matter, to sort of say, Mr. Trudeau has really screwed up housing royally and somebody else has got to fix it. They'll both have different ideas, but I think that that's something that both both men are going to be able to say and have a claim to. Now, doesn't mean that the Liberals are operating in a vacuum. They've got Mr. Fraser out there making announcement after announcement, really trying to sort of change gears from, if you remember a few months ago, Mr. Trudeau said, federal government's sort of housing's not its top priority or it's, you know, that's not really something that we're only in charge of. They've changed gears completely, right? Now housing is number one. Every single, um, you know, word that comes out of the federal Mm -hmm. government is about housing because they know how big a problem they've got is. But listen, uh, Paul, that's the way politics is, Ian, is is that's a day one problem and you got to get elected before the day one problems really hit you and before you're in charge. Yeah, you know what? I appreciate the honesty there and that is an honest assessment and you're right. We've seen that in, uh, you know, by various parties in election campaign after election campaign. But I think people listening also, you know, need to think about that, right? No matter who they um, are following, who, who they would like to see win um, is that there's a difference between what gets said in the pre-campaign 
to what's said in the campaign, to what's said when a party does either stay in power or get uh, in power. I, I do want to get some more calls in before the top of the hour, and I will come back to both of you for maybe a minute uh, at about uh, the 58-minute mark. But Tyler, do you want to quickly uh, weigh in on this, uh, you know, on the expectations of Alex in Calgary? I think Alex is the perfect encapsulation of the median voter who's struggling with their choice right now, because it's interesting. What he said to you there was he thinks Pierre Polyev is the answer to the housing market. And I bet a lot of people think that way, right? And the reality is on the things that Pierre has promised, specifically, let's take the example of taking uh, tax, a GST off of, off of purpose-built rental. The actual proposal from the Conservatives is a narrower, more bureaucratic version than the actual bill that the government itself has tabled in the last couple of months. And I say that because in a sense, to the question you posed to Jason there, it kind of doesn't matter what the policy reality is. That's how people feel. And that's and it's that feeling of how people will vote. And, and Alex probably feels that because Pierre has very successfully harnessed an energy and targeted a villain, specifically municipalities, as being the gatekeepers of housing construction. And he has relentlessly and consistently pursued that message. And the government has not been as relentless and as consistent. And even though they actually have probably, and I would certainly agree with this, a better policy suite to solve the problem, that's not how people feel. And it's not who they are going to give the credit to uh, going forward. So I just, I, I think his comments there are actually really emblematic of what a lot of people are feeling. Mm-hmm. Tyler Meredith, a liberal strategist and Jason Leader, a conservative strategist. And let me say for both of you and also for our listeners and viewers, uh, how the next few minutes will unfold. We're going to stay with this topic until about uh, 10 after 5 Eastern time. So about 15 minutes from now. So that last word that I'm going to get from each of you will uh, happen just uh, before the 10 minute mark of the next hour. And so we do have an opportunity to take a few calls before that. If a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? What's pushing you to switch parties? Doug Moffat is in Uxbridge, Ontario. Hi, Doug. Hi, Ian. How are you? Good. I see in the notes here you would not vote differently. So um, I guess you're disclosing who you voted for last time and why have you not considered switching your vote? Well, I would consider, but I certainly wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I really feel is that uh, Trudeau did a very good job in the pandemic. Yet that was unexpected, uh, actual facts happening, and he reacted better than anybody else I could think of. Hmm. Uh, where where was Polyev? He was out talking to the leaders of the convoy. Uh, Polyev really didn't show himself well at that point. And if you're going to make housing a big example to elect a conservative government, I got one word, Doug Ford. All right, Doug Moffat, thank you very much for uh, for calling in. And uh, I'm going to try to squeeze one more call in before the uh, top of the hour, because the top of the hour is when we say goodbye to our audience on CBC News Network. Paul is in Rosetown, Saskatchewan. Paul, how do you pronounce your last name? Cernick. Cernick. Okay. So uh, if a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? Uh, no, no. And uh, if you've got notes there, you probably see that I, I'm of the opinion that I'd be awfully, I'd be awfully surprised if there's going to be a, uh, a lot of people in Western Canada who are going to be changing their vote. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, uh, so tell me about who you, I mean, if you're willing to disclose it, who you voted for last time around and how you feel about that uh, choice next time. Well, let's do full disclosure. When I was a young man, I, I not only supported, I actually ran for the NDP at one point. Hmm. Uh, and, and then I went to work in the media, and I, uh, because of my experience in the media, I was exposed to 
all the different various political uh, uh, iterations that are out there. And I ended up uh, supporting conservatives, and I blog as conservative even now. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking around here. It's the same thing as it happened in, in a few provincial elections ago. Uh, uh, it's like the, the CBC, you guys, and a few other organizations, you're, you're trying to put out there like it's all you know even and balanced and everything. And I'm driving around here, and I'm going, oh, I see a conservative signs. That's it. That's all I see. And, and the voting shows that. You know, nothing but conservatives from Saskatchewan, uh, mostly conservatives in all the other provinces, and and I can't see that changing. I, I just I don't understand how anyone would even think that it's 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 that there's even a hope of that changing. Everyone who voted conservative in the last election in Western Canada is going to vote conservative in this election. The yeah. very few exceptions you're going to find are like that one caller you had a little while ago. I really got the impression it was like a personal thing with him. He just doesn't like Pierre Polder. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you're going to find the odd case like that, but but. You're, that's going to be rare. Yeah. Very, very few people. Everyone who voted conservative from Manitoba West in the last election is going to vote conservative this time around. And can I ask you a question here? Uh, CBC here, I, I found this on CBC Saskatchewan, the link to this, this whole story and what mm-hmm. we're doing here now. And, I, and I, I, uh, I didn't find that link anywhere else on any of the other provincial or city, uh, uh, you know, your local news on, online. Yeah, I didn't find any links or any mention of this cross can checkup only here in Saskatchewan. Is there is there some reason for that? I, I don't. So you didn't see a link to this program? Yeah, there's no mention of this program on any of the of the other uh, like you know your local news source. Well, CBC. well, we'll just yeah. have to fix that then because yeah. there should be. I, I get that's fairly random, but I thought it, yeah. I thought it was kind of strange. It's yeah. just only here. It's yeah, well, no, no, there's no plan, or if there is a plan, yeah, okay. nobody's nobody's explained that to me. And, and Paul, listen, I got to say, back mm. to something you said earlier, like, mm. you know, I've, I've been involved in news coverage for a long time, and it's pretty clear uh, in, in any coverage I've been involved in or seen that, uh, you know, we do, like, we know that in huge portions of Saskatchewan, almost all of Alberta and a big chunk of British Columbia, uh, it is solid conservative support. So that is, uh, it's not like we're suggesting otherwise. You said, anyway, so uh, that, that yeah. story has been pretty clearly told. Paul, thank you very much for calling in. Yeah, no problem. You're listening to Cross Country Checkup, and notwithstanding what has been or hasn't been linked on uh, the various CBC sites across the country, we are on the air, live. Uh, If a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? What's pushing you to switch parties? We will continue this conversation uh, for about 10 minutes, and then we'll switch to a different topic uh, in the rest of the second hour. But right now, we would like to say goodbye to our TV viewers on CBC News Network as we continue today's show live here. Rosemary Barton, live. Live is next on the CBC News Network. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup. And uh, so coming up in just a few minutes, uh, there has not been a news event in some time that's been as polarizing as the war between Israel and Hamas. It's difficult for a lot of people to even talk about it. Uh, whether it's in their home or with friends or at the workplace. So we're going to have two experts coming in here in about 10 minutes' time, experts in interfaith advocacy who will talk about how they're having civil conversations and how 
to sort of encourage civil conversations about what's happening in the Middle East. Our question for our next topic, how are you handling difficult conversations with family and friends about the Israel-Hamas war? You can start calling us now on topic two at 1-888-416-8333. But before we get there, let's continue to explore this question. If a federal election happened today, would you vote differently? Neil Douglas is in Whitehorse. Hi, Neil. Uh, hi, Mr. Hanamassing. How are you? Good, good. You can call me Ian. Uh, and so how, how would you answer the show question uh, today? Uh, would you change your vote from last time around? Uh, yeah, it's kind of uh, funny. I, I wouldn't. I voted for the NDP last election. Um, I did, however, vote for Trudeau for uh, his first campaign uh, mm-hmm. when he first became prime minister. Uh, but uh, eventually I kind of realized that he wasn't going to be the change that he was talking about, uh, especially when it comes to the climate. And so as you see, at least as of now, this surge in support for the Conservative Party, um, you know, most polls showing that support at about 40% and for the Liberals at about 27%. Does that give you pause at all in terms of your vote and maybe the call that might happen during the election to try to vote strategically? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm sitting here uh, in my uh, overpriced basement suite in Whitehorse uh, <laughs> and doing my uh, uh, one of my research papers for proportional representation mm-hmm. uh, for the country, but uh, to kind of help us get us away from the strategic voting because uh, it's the classic case of, you know, worst guy or, uh, sorry, not the worst guy, but, uh, you know, wh- uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Uh, uh, just two bad options and pick the less bad option, I suppose. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And to be honest, I think this is the one chance for the NDP to actually leapfrog the Liberals and become Mm -hmm. official opposition again, because Trudeau is just pandering, uh, trying to stall for time until he gets to the proper election uh, window to basically lean more progressive and try and steal NDP votes yet again with some some type of bait. I mean, being a student, if you wanted to pay for our tuition, that'd be cool. But uh, <laughs> at the same <laughs> at the same time, uh, uh, I still don't think I'd uh, lend my vote his way just because the climate. It's just um, it's yeah. It, 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 all of these all of these are just pointless um, topics to really banter about because when we all you know are these houses like. Building houses, I understand it's a huge issue, but I mean, it's not a huge issue when they all burn down because we haven't implemented proper climate policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's it's just pointless to have these debates. I mean, your one panelist talked about how uh, you're willing to look past, uh, uh, you know, certain flaws in the character uh, if it means that it's good for their pocketbook. And mm-hmm. all we have to do is look to the neighbors of our southern border, and um, you see how that turned out. Okay. Um, but I, I, that, I guess, but instead of rambling on too long, I guess I'll, I'll leave it there. You are, you are not rambling at all, Neil, and I appreciate you calling from your, as you describe it, overpriced basement suite in Whitehorse. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, some uh, federal rent uh, subsidies would be nice, uh, Trudeau, but uh, if you're listening... Okay, so it sounds to me, Neil, like your vote could be bought by a rent subsidy and free <laughs> tuition, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, if, uh, <laughs> All right. Well, I'm sure I'm sure liberal strategists are are saying, yes, we could get Neil Douglas's vote by this policy. So good to know. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you. Bye bye.
Let's, let's go from uh, Whitehorse to Peterborough, Ontario, and Shannon Yip Choi has uh, called us. Hi, Shannon. Hello, Ian. How are you? Good. I think I read your comment uh, via AirCheck, and now I, uh, now we're we're reaching out to you. So just a reminder Indeed. to people that is a good way to get in touch with us. You can make a comment. You can also mention that you are interested in being on the show at cbc.ca/slash. Air check. So what about for you, Shannon, in terms of, uh, do you think your support will change or if the election were to be held now, would it be different uh, who you'd vote for as opposed to last time around? Yeah, yeah, it would be. Um, have been a, a lifelong liberal, um, voted liberal in every election. Um, and I just, I can't see uh, a way to get myself to that point this time or next time, whatever that may be. So, and what's changed? Um, what's changed for you? Um, you know, I'm a millennial. I'm I'm a single homeowner, and life is just it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. And in a couple of years, when I have to renew my mortgage, I don't know that I'll be able to afford to do that. Um, and nothing that I have seen from the liberals, nothing that I have. Uh, heard from them seems to indicate to me that life would get any less expensive uh, under uh, a continuation of their government. So if you were to change your vote and and vote conservative, um, what would your expectation be in terms of what would change? Um, I... on. It's funny because I don't necessarily know that the the conservatives have a much better policy, um, particularly anything that might bring the cost of housing down. Um, scrapping a car- the carbon tax, which everyone has has made a point of saying, yeah, it's revenue neutral, and and that I don't know whether scrapping it will make a huge difference. But at this point, I kind of think, well, what's happening now? What's the, the status quo isn't working. So let's see if something new will. And I see a note here, uh, I guess you chatted with one of our producers, where you say that uh, Pierre Polyev scares me, but Trudeau and the Liberals have lost my confidence. So yeah. how, how do you feel about the prospect of voting for somebody who, in your own words, scares you? I'm not happy about it, <laughs> yeah. truly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, back back in the day, you know, if the federal pro- progressive conservatives were still around, mm-hmm. I think I would honestly very happily give them my vote. I think that they were a little bit more tempered in their approach to governing, in their social policies. Um, but, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't think that um, the Liberals really have their ear to the ground anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't think that they're they're really paying attention to what's actually going on in the country and responding to how people are feeling. Yeah. Shannon, thank you very much for connecting with us via AirCheck. Thank you. And uh, just a, a note to our panel, I'm going to come to uh, both of you in just a moment, maybe a couple of minute uh, comments from each of you to, to sum up. But before we get there, our last call on our first topic, Patrick Garcutt is in Ottawa. Hi, Patrick. Hi, how are you, Ian? I'm doing well. So on our show topic that is uh, in this portion of the program is, uh, as you know, if there was an election to be held today, would you vote differently than you did last time around? What's your answer to that, Patrick? Absolutely not. I've been an NDPer for a long time because I'm a healthcare provider. 
also have a private business and provide care in people's homes. And I'm really frustrated with the way that the federal government under uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has handed money to the provinces without strings. So they're not there to protect universal health care. That's a challenge for me. But I think that we also have to keep in mind that many of us do not like the tone in politics. Anger politics is very frustrating for Canadians. We want them to talk policy. I don't care. I, obviously, I, I'm voting for the NDP. I have a challenge with Mr. Polyev, who courts an extreme right wing. But I have a real challenge with the fact that he will blame uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and actually call him by name as opposed to liberal policy, personalizing everything right down to um, how thick his pancake batter is. Mm. It's a real problem for me. And so how do we change that? How do we, I mean, even like candidates aside, how do you think we get more civility in political discourse? I don't know, but I think Canadians are probably always about five years behind the United States in terms of the direction of politics. And I think we're walking a very fine line right now uh, with regards to whether or not we can be civil even in our own homes with families in terms of different opinions. All right, Patrick, that is a good place to end uh, the caller portion of our first topic. Thank you very much for calling. Cheers. And let's bring our panel back, Tyler Meredith, the Liberal strategist who uh, was up until last year an advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau and Jason Leader, a Conservative strategist who worked with politicians like former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, we've got a few minutes, four or five minutes uh, to, to have kind of final comments from in total from, from both of you. And, and Jason, I, I guess, I mean, you can take this anywhere you want, but as you listen to these calls, obviously an unscientific, random sampling of, of voices from across the country. Um, what stands out to you? Yeah, it matches up with my experience, right? Ian. I mean, uh, I've I, I've been in politics a long time, you know, since mid '90s or late '90s, provincially and federally, and and I've seen a lot of elections. And I started off. I'm going to finish where I started off. Is Mr. Trudeau is able to win this election? It will be a bit of a miracle, and and you know he he will be have been very proud of be able to have been very proud of that because you know I think Canadians are increasingly you know he came in like a house on fire in 2015 and then he disappointed a lot of people you've heard a little bit on that on the calls here they were still able to you know win in 2019 and 2021 or 22 and and you know the thing is they're looking at this guy right now and he sort of looks a little tired a little desperate and a little frivolous as well right um it's a very serious world out there like people are talking about not making mortgage payments and you know there's you know earlier it was funny I laughed you know, somebody mentioned the straw ban or the plastics ban. And it's just sort of like, you know, the stuff that he you hear him talking about. I'm not saying he's talking about the, the straw ban a lot anymore, but it's just sort of like, listen, I can't pay for my house, dude. I, I, I wouldn't mind using a plastic bag when I go to the grocery store. Like <laughs> there's just a little bit of that, you know, coming like, let's get real for a bit, you know, kind of thing is what's mm-hmm. happening out there right now. And so I, you know, I think he's really got to change the way he communicates if he wants, if he wants to win. And he's up against a once in a generation candidate. I know that there's some people who don't like Polyev out there. I've heard, I've heard from them, but you know, the truth is 40% of Canadians are sort of looking at him and saying, I don't mind that. And I sort of like that. And he's got to close the deal. He's got a big, a big job to do, but I'll just say he's a much better communicator than most conservative federal conservatives that have come through over the last little bit. He's got a really good idea of what he wants to do. He's talking about the right issues. And the other thing, is I don't think he's going to blow it. I don't think he's going to make these sort of self-inflicted wounds that past conservatives leaders have. He's not a real social conservative. In fact, he's not a social conservative at, at all. His wife is a, is a huge political asset and they're starting to use her. 
they're really starting to campaign smartly. And Mr. Trudeau, you know, it's eight years in. He's got a really, really difficult time, and he's looking a little bit desperate these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tyler, same same kind of general question to you. Just uh, reflect on on what you've heard and take that in any direction you want. So I would agree with Jason that Pierre Polyev is actually one of the strongest, if not the strongest competitor that the Conservatives could or or have fielded against Justin Trudeau. Um, Certainly stronger than Andrew Scheer, certainly stronger than Aaron O'Toole, um, and certainly stronger, I would argue, than Stephen Harper. But uh, I think if we assume that Mr. Trudeau is still the leader of the Liberal Party going into the next election, whenever that is, there's three factors that are probably going to dictate at least how the prime minister can Um, position himself in relation to that election. One is communications, the other is policy, and the third is circumstance. And so on communications, you know, we heard one of your callers today, uh, I think the student in Whitehorse who was talking about how wouldn't it be great uh, if the government could do something for students. This government has invested billions of dollars in helping students. Student grants today are more than double what they were when Stephen Harper was last in office. Uh, and, And when they graduate, they won't pay any more interest on their student loans. And yet, most people don't know that. And they don't know that because the government has not had a very effective and very good communication strategy on this and many other issues. The second issue is policy, right? The government has been pulled in many directions on crisis. And on some of those crises, especially COVID, the government has gotten good marks. But you know, it, it, it in when in when you're in crisis mode constantly, it's difficult to actually present a policy agenda that people can relate to uh, as they think about difficult circumstances. And so if you're a homeowner, right, who has a mortgage, you can see that Sean Frazier is doing things that potentially make the housing market better by growing more supply. But that's that's housing starts that's going to happen years from now. It doesn't help me with my mortgage, doesn't help me with my energy bill. And so the government needs to think about a policy agenda that's directly uh, focused on those problems. And the third issue is circumstance, right? So if we imagine a world a year from now, two things could change radically that could have an impact on the next election. One is it's quite possible that we may see Donald Trump uh, elected as president. And I think the return of Donald Trump as uh, as president may focus the mind for Canadians quite critically about who they want to send into battle as Canada's representative. I'm not sure that people would necessarily choose Pierre Polyev in that choice. They may they may still, but but I think that's a that's an important factor we have to watch. The second is it's possible between now and and next sometime next year we're going to see interest rates cut. And I think the point that David Coletto made to you at the beginning of the show about how interest rates have really driven a lot of the surge that Pierre Polyev has faced recently is an important factor. Now, it doesn't mean that if interest rates were cut today, that I think we would go back to a normal in which uh, it's a tied political environment. You need some time for that to bake itself into the political dynamic. But at the end of the day, if a lot of this surge has been driven by people feeling economic anxiety about the cost of their mortgage, there's a possibility that that change in interest rate environment may actually have a benefit to the government. But again, you can't bank, bank on that. That was a great answer. It was also a long answer. And I, in my head, trying to balance things out here uh, a little bit. So you know what? I am going to go back to uh, to Jason just for, just, you know, in the sake of balancing time. Uh, last comment to you, Jason, maybe about a minute. Yeah, I mean, I think that housing, that housing piece, it's funny, you know, Tyler, you know, said out loud what a lot of liberals have been saying around Ottawa for the last little bit, like, it's almost like, 
well, I don't want Trump back in in the United States, but if Trump comes back into the United States, maybe we, like if that's what you're pinning your hopes on, it's real for sure, but it's also a little bit sad, right? For a for a guy who came into office, Mr. Mr. Trudeau, I'm going to change everything sunny ways. I'm going to do everything differently. And it's like my best chance is if Trump just is able to beat that decrepit Biden south of the border. It's like, it's pretty sad what Justin Trudeau has been res- res- you know, reduced to if that's the case. I will say I, one of the things that I agree with Tyler on is things do change. The circumstances portion of his things. I think they're dead on mostly on communications. I think they're dead mostly on policy. But in terms of circumstance, things can change there and things might change. And Mr. Trudeau, I made a joke earlier, Mr. Trudeau might start dating somebody next year. You just don't know how anything's going to going to change. And 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 that's the kind of stuff that can really change this thing. But Mr. Polyev, from a conservative perspective, just has to keep his eye on the ball, right? People can't afford to mm-hmm. live. You heard it time and time and time again on these calls. Um, and if you can't afford to live, you don't have sort of the luxury of voting for other issues. And there's only one sort of guy who's really camp- been campaigning on that for a couple of years, and that's Mr. Polyev. So he's got to be able to keep the focus on that. So three things come to mind. My instinct is to go back to Tyler to get him to respond to the Trump point, but I just can't keep going back and forth. We're kind of at the end <laughs> of this portion of the show. The second thing I would think is, forget about the leaders debating in the next election campaign. You guys would be fantastic to watch debating. I would love to see you go head to head for an hour. Maybe we'll do that uh, on a program. We're, we're, we're too good of friends, but we will. We'll and, do it for sport, for sure. And, and thirdly, let me say, uh, it's been great having uh, the analysis uh, from each of you. I'm sure some of the partisans who are listening, um, depending on what side their partisans for, loved or got riled up by what you said. But there was a lot of smart analysis, and I really appreciate it. So thanks to both of you. Thanks for having us. See you, Tyler. Jason Leader, conservative strategist who worked with politicians like former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Tyler Meredith, a liberal strategist who was, up until last year, an advisor to Prime Minister Trudeau. It's time now for our second topic on today's show. The first thing is to try to empathize being from the other side. They are suffering too. They, their heart is also broken. It is day 44 in the Israel-Hamas war. And our second topic today is about the tricky conversations you might be having or hoping to have with family and friends. Everybody is feeling trauma. Everybody's feeling insecure. And the tendency when we feel insecure is to retreat into our own silos. As always, if you'd like to take part in the program, you can give us a call right now, 1-888-416-8333, 1-888-416-8333. I'm a Palestinian with uh, Israeli citizenship. My conversation is with Jewish Israeli friends who I've met in university or I've worked with as colleagues. My kids are going to school in fear, And I'm going to the office in fear. Politics don't belong in the classroom. We're all Canadians here. No matter what side, it's been horrible. It's been absolutely horrible. But if we can separate that anger from the people themselves, it's between two governments, Hamas and Israeli government. We've done a lot of coverage on the Israel-Hamas war from the brutal attacks in Israel on October 7th. And since then, as Israel vows to eliminate Hamas, the civilian deaths and despair in Gaza. It's no surprise that people around the world, including here in Canada, have some very strong feelings about what's been happening. 
But how do you talk about it when others may find what you're saying, even a word you use, offensive? And so our question, how are you handling difficult conversations with family and friends about the Israel-Hamas war? Our number one 888-416-8333. And as you've heard, you can share comments or appear on Checkup today by going to cbc.ca slash aircheck. And we have a couple of people who are going to be with us for the remainder of the program who have devoted a lot of their time and energy and expertise to trying to encourage civil conversations on these very difficult topics. Bernie Farber, a longtime Jewish human rights advocate. He's the former CEO of the Canadian Jewish Congress. He's also a consultant who is currently working with the UJA Federation of Toronto, and he is in Toronto. And Janan Mohajir is the Vice President of External Affairs at the nonprofit Interfaith America. She's a Muslim American advocate who has trained leaders on cultivating relationships across different communities, and she is in Chicago. And so welcome to both of you. Thank you. And uh, reminder, reminder, yeah, I'm really glad that both of you are taking part. And a reminder to our listeners, our number is 188. 188- one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. You can also text us at two two six seven five eight eight nine two four. Bernie, let me start with you. You've spent your career trying to foster relationships between different faith and cultural communities, but but you've often said that the sort of Israel-Palestine debate and question is the quote elephant in the room. Why is it so difficult to discuss this subject? Well, I, I think that there are two communities, both of whom have strong and even tragic histories that date back hundreds, if not even thousands of years. Um, Both communities hold on to their histories. And as a result um, of of that, uh, they have become uh, more or less, they more or less adhere to, to the narrative that they best understand. And so it's been, it's, it's been hard, Ian. I mean, I've dealt with bringing many, many groups together uh, of, uh, of different um, size and uh, different um, uh, positions. But I can tell you that when it comes to bringing Jews, Muslims slash Palestinians together uh, to to just even engage, uh, it's probably one of the most difficult things that, that we can do. And um, There have been times in in the past when I've worked with Canadian Jewish Congress that we have been able, for example, to bring clergy together, imams and rabbis, and get them into the same room. Uh, But as as I've said consistently, uh, the most difficult thing to speak to is the elephant in the room, and that is the the, the hostilities between um, uh, both uh, within the Jewish community and the and the, and the Muslim Palestinian Arab communities, the wars that have ensued, the deaths that have ensued, the pain that has ensued, and so they stick to easy things. We talk about kosher halal food. We talk about <laughs> even circumcision is easy in comparison to uh, to all of this, mm-hmm. um, and that's between imams and rabbis. Uh, imagine how much more difficult it is to bring just say secular leadership together mm-hmm. um, and have them without a war going on in the background, yep. talk about those issues. Uh, it's uh, it's not only fairly difficult, it's next to impossible. And I can tell you that here in Canada, uh, I can't remember yet a time that there have been a official 
meetings between uh, those two leaderships. So I know that there have been closed door meetings mm-hmm. and there have been individuals between, uh, you know, between the two communities that have gotten together. And I, I'll tell you a story later on about um, about one interaction I had just recently. Um, but for the most part, uh, we're still hovering on the edges of this. Yeah. So we're going to go to callers in, in just a moment and stay uh, chatting with both of you uh, through the rest of the hour. Just want to remind the people who are listening, our phone number one eight 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 four one six eight three three three, and our text number is two two six seven five eight eight nine two four. How are you handling difficult conversations with family and friends about the Israel Hamas war? Uh, Janen, uh, what do you say to people who are listening who are who who want to talk about this topic because it's so important to them, but worry about broaching it because it is, as Bernie says, the elephant in the room. Yeah, in fact, it is the elephant in the room. And I think for that reason, you know, we when we broach this topic at Interfaith America, we're very clear that if there isn't a foundational relationship already built, if there isn't, um, if you aren't, already haven't spent time kind of thinking about and talking about other things and have invested time in a relationship, um, t- starting at the point of talking about the conflict um, between Israel and Palestine is probably not the place. It's probably not the place that you begin to build a relationship. Um, it is a difficult topic. It is something that needs a lot of care. It needs a lot of, um, you know, uh, foundation in terms of who you're speaking with, how long you've known them, um, and as you will see, you know, this play out on social media in other ways. People are throwing facts at each other. They're throwing data at each other. And what this conversation really needs to be um, anchored in, if it is going to be a conversation between two communities who are hurting in very deep ways, is to really anchor that in narrative and story and use that as a starting point. And then you can get to the difficult conversation of, um, you know, sitting in the, in the tension between the narratives that exist. Mm-hmm. So, Janine and Bernie, please uh, listen as we go to these callers, because I would like to come back to you and get your wisdom and guidance on some of the issues they uh, raise. And let's start with Paul Bennett, who's in Powell River, British Columbia. Hi, Paul. Hi, Ian. I, you've been on the show before, right? Uh, yeah, I believe, like, right at the start of this, yeah. um, I called in and because I was noticing right away, it, it like your guests have said, it's one of those issues that seems to... Um, activate people very, very much so, including myself. Like, um, you know, I remember going to protests in the late 90s in Vancouver for pro-Palestinian protests that I wasn't quite sure of the deep, the nuances back then. I know a lot more about them now. Um, but anyways, um, yeah, no, I, I've noticed that um, it's one thing that kind of keeps coming up that I notice is, is, the friends that I have that are, you know, more on the Zionist side um, still have a bit of, have a hurt from that first week of October 7th where people weren't reaching out and checking in to see how they're doing and were really quick to jump onto social media and in some ways condone the attacks as mm-hmm. a form of resistance. Um, and that was very hurtful, rather, like rather than calling this in. Um, and then now that the sort of the death count, as you could call it, in Palestine with the Israeli uh, retaliation has mounted, it, the diff- the, these conversations seem to have gotten even more difficult. And, mm-hmm. and I'm kind of like I've my approach has been to if I see somebody that's very activated on social media, 
that's a close friend, and I really like what um, Jenen said, um, I hope I said your name mm-hmm. right, um, about, um, you know, if you don't have a strong foundation already as, you know, as a connection on other issues, then this is definitely not the topic to jump in on. Mm-hmm. Um, but even friends that have that strong foundation um, are starting to really kind of not be able to communicate um, and... Um, yeah, I kind of forget what my point was. But well, but you know what, Paul? Like, I remember when you called before, right at the beginning of the conflict, maybe a week in, and you were yeah. talking about how, if I remember correctly, just how how you weren't sure how to proceed. You obviously care about this. You're obviously an empathetic person, and, and you weren't sure how to proceed. So now, four or five weeks later, um, how are—I mean, it's— I, you don't sound pained, but you do sound, you're clearly thoughtful and, and you can't resolve all the issues around you. Um, but how do you feel about how things are going with you and these dialogues with friends? Well, I have really good conversations with friends um, and I find them very helpful and I find them also very dis, uh, uncomfortable and mm-hmm. I'm kind of learning to sit with my own discomfort and, and regulate be able to self-regulate that and not have all the answers and not try and fix friendships because um, that can also be damaging and dangerous to try and be the sort of like fixer of everything. And mm-hmm. it can take you as a person, it can take a lot of energy and take a lot of your own emotional, can be very emotional taxing. So I'm still trying to just listen and learn. Um, it just seems like the conversations are getting more heated, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is more discomfort for myself, which means more sort of self-regulation required, and I just need to keep coming back to that to remind myself that it's okay to be discom- uncomfortable in this time, because I think many people are, but not to um, not to forget that there's always a, a, a person and an emotion behind what they're expressing, and that's what I'm tr- I keep trying to come back to, is mm-hmm. trying to just, you know, see what this person is experiencing. Paul, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Let's go to our next caller now in Toronto, Abil Massal. Uh, hi, Abil. Um, I'm, how, how are you? Good, good. So um, what about in your life? What's it been like trying to talk about uh, what's happening in the uh, Hamas-Israel war? Um, it's been very difficult, um, but it's been very difficult prior to the war. It's more difficult during the war, and I'm sure it'll be difficult after the war. I mean, there just has to be a lot of work done on this issue. Um, I know I was at a I was at a conference, and the conference was this is prior to the war. It was on um, social justice issues, and Israel came up, and somebody um, came in and said, "This is anti-Semitic." To talk about anti-Semitic, everything shut down. All conversations shut down. So this is clearly the elephant in the room. Liberal democratic institutions cannot process the term anti-Semitic, um, as soon as it's uttered, it shuts down dialogue completely. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be anti-Semitic to talk about Israel, but people are very fearful of talking about the state of Israel. Um, this is, I say, when I say people in, in all ranks, whether you are very high up or very low down, you're, you're just, you're scared. Um, and that's because um, people are scared because there are consequences for um, talking about Israel. There's that label of anti-Semitic, even if you're not anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. And we don't give that label to anybody else in terms of we can criticize governments as a democracy, we can criticize all sorts of people, but not Israel. So that's very Orwellian, very 1984-ish, it's very scary for people. So an example of that is, even this is not even criticizing, but the, the 
the position that was offered to Valentina Azarofa uh, for UFT. The fact that that was taken back because of her scholarship, and she's not anti-Semitic, but her scholarship, based on the fact that she was talking about Israel, that in itself cost her her livelihood, her a potential job at the University of Toronto. Um, she did get that position offered to her again, but only after um, so many people organized and said, mm-hmm. no, it can't be, we need, we need freedom. So I don't know the details of that case, but I, I think you raise an issue that is uh, obviously, you know, uh, very interesting and other people can relate to that. Um, I would say that it's not just about criticizing Israel being called anti-Semitic. I think a lot of uh, a lot of times in conversations about difficult issues, they can be shut down by people who invoke, you know, who talk that, you know, say that something is sexist or racist or just, you know, not uh, well-founded, but it does make it very difficult to have hard conversations when those conversations are quickly dismissed as, as being something that maybe they're not. So, uh, Bill, yes, thank you sir. very much. L- l- let me, uh, so I appreciate your call. Uh, let's go to Bernie Farber now. And, and what about that? Uh, you know, what a bill says is that, you know, that criticizing Israel sh- it can get shut down right away uh, for being, uh, quote-unquote, anti-Semitic. Well, <clears throat> Ian, I think, um, I, and I, I hear what Bill says, and uh, we have to consider this, but we also have to remember that October 7th was a pivotal point, um, probably an existential moment in uh, in worldwide Jewish history. Uh, for the first time since the, uh, since the Holocaust, um, you know, more, more Jews were murdered in a single day, uh, and not just murdered, but brutally so. Uh, savagely so. And this has permeated the trauma of each and every uh, Jewish person in some way or another around the world. And so there has become, uh, I I think, a let's circle the wagons and uh, let's understand who we are as a people in that historically anti-Semitism is known as the longest hatred. And it's, it's, it's not for, you know, uh, indiscriminate reasons that it is known as as the longest hatred, including you know a full attempt to wipe out uh, the Jew, the Jews of Europe that 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 almost succeeded, and then comes October the seventh, uh, in which all of this trauma and I, and I speak to you and I speak to your to your listeners as a child of a Holocaust survivor who was the only uh, survivor of his small Polish town mm-hmm. uh, of 750. He was the only one to have survived. Um, and, and that is something that permeates inter- intergenerationally. And so when October the 7th happened, I stood stunned in front of the TV, uh, watching with tears in my eyes, uh, uncharacteristically unable to utter a single word. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so this is how Jews feel that the world has in some ways turned against them. And then Paul made a, you know another uh, fascinating point, um, and that was that October the seventh, in terms of world empathy, lasted for about twenty minutes, um, and then the war happened. And let us remember that the war is between Israel and Hamas, but war is horrible. War is horrible. And, and, and people are killed during war, and, and sometimes, you know, who knows why in terms of, of again, indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have all of this pain happening all at once, and Jews becoming extremely fearful 
and having to deal with that trauma all mm-hmm. over again. Bernie Farber is uh, has been involved in this issue for a long time, former CEO of the Canadian Jewish Congress. Um, in another circumstance, Bernie, I would ask you a follow-up question, but I really want to bring uh, Janen Mohajer back into the conversation, Vice President of External Affairs at the nonprofit Interfaith America, and she joins us from Chicago. So let, let me pick up with what the caller said, which was that criticism of somebody or of Israel was shut down at a conference she was at for being anti-Semitic, um, which she feels very strongly it was not. She found it very frustrating. And then Bernie adding the context of how, how you know, harrowing and searing October the 7th was for so many Jewish people. Um, and so, Janen, what about, what does somebody do if, if, whether it's at a conference or at the dinner table or at the workplace, they say something and it's shut down because somebody says, we're not even going to talk anymore because what you're saying is anti-Semitic. Where do you go next? I think that's a really hard, that's a really hard situation to navigate. And I think what's important to remember is that it is possible to have a critique of um, what is happening in Israel without falling into anti-Semitic tropes. And I think that's something that we have to educate ourselves on. Um, we have to um, spend the time to figure out and, and do the work that we all need to do in order to do that. Um, and as Bernie said, anti-Semitism is, you know, is something that has always been on the rise. It has uh, been on the rise um, in the week of October 7th. Um, we are also seeing that anti-Muslim bigotry is on the rise and Islamophobia is on the rise in the wake of October 7th as well here in the United States and in Canada. Um, in fact, just a few miles away from where I live in the south side of Chicago, um, a young six-year-old boy was murdered um, a week after October 7th by his landlord. Um, he was a Palestinian-American Muslim boy by the name of Wadia. And, you know, I was at his funeral. His funeral was hosted at a mosque where um, a lot of um, where my, you know, my children are familiar with it. My children are part Palestinian. Um, it's, a, it's a community where I started my career as a teacher, and I attended that funeral, and it was really um, touching to see that a group of Chicago rabbis had come to attend his funeral, recognizing that even though there are deep differences in the way that they and this community would see the conflict, um, it was important to mark this very brutal um, murder of a six-year-old boy um, that was an anti-Muslim, anti-Palestinian crime that happened um, in the few days after October 7th here in North America. Mm-hmm. So I think what's important is to actually start to have conversations about what it means for these communities to be facing a rise in hate crimes against themselves, both um, Jewish uh, communities and also Palestinian and Muslim communities, and then also to raise the conversation within our um, education systems, within our workplaces on how to have these conversations, these difficult conversations in ways that allows people to step into their own story, their own pain, their own hurt, and at the same time, not fall into um, tropes. Um, whether those are anti-Semitic tropes or whether those are anti-Muslim tropes that will then shut down the conversation on their on their end. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll tell you just a really personal story on that. My 12-year-old who's in seventh grade, I, I was prepping him to go to school um, in the, the days after October 7th. And the first thing he said to me was, it's okay, mama, I'm used to racism. Mm-hmm. And that broke my heart because it should not be common for 12-year-old Muslim, Jewish, Palestinian uh, boys or girls to have to navigate that, but they are. So it's important for us to be 
having these conversations both at home and other spaces. Jenna and Moajur, thank you very much. And I'll come back to both you and Bernie again in the next uh, 20 minutes or so. But our next guest reached out to us uh, via AirCheck, and he's seen firsthand how teachers are struggling with this issue in the classroom. Peter Flaherty, a professor in the Faculty of Education at York University, and he is in Toronto. Hi, Peter. Hi there. So you are training uh, future teachers uh, who are dealing with this uh, in the classroom now, I guess, because they they do their practicums, I suppose. Um, How are they feeling, these students, these young teachers, about confronting this issue with their students? Well, let's say confused, anxious, uh, sometimes fearful, but also really feeling that this is, I mean, the term teachable moment gets thrown around a lot, but this is... I've been teaching for a long time, both high school and university, and I would say that this issue is the teachable moment of all teachable moments. So we've talked a lot about how to deal with controversial issues. Uh, some of them are a little afraid. They, they may feel they have, lack a knowledge base. They may be concerned about uh, something that might develop in the classroom. They may be worried about administration or parents or what the school board thinks. But basically, I I mean, the term the elephant in the room has been used a couple of times already by your Mm -hmm. guests, but Mm -hmm. this is a big elephant in the room. And I've always been the kind of educator who believes that it's our responsibility professionally to engage with it, provided we do so in an appropriate way. My next question is a big one, and I don't, unfortunately, have a lot of time for the answer, but maybe you can give me an example of the the guidance that you're giving your, uh, your student teachers. I would say they have three. They have basically three three choices. One is to avoid the issue completely, which I do not recommend. Even though I can understand why sometimes they might be tempted to do that. Second approach would be to facilitate a discussion of it, a respectful conversation with rules and uh, an understanding that certain things won't be permitted. Whereas while the teacher remains kind of a neutral uh, arbitrator and doesn't. Um, suggest or offer their own viewpoint. Option three would be do do the same as option two, but if a student does ask you where your stand on this issue, what your opinion is, uh, I don't think you should hesitate to to give it, provided that it's made clear that this is your opinion, you're not expecting the others to endorse it, uh, and uh, just be honest. Um, I've done both. I've never done one. <laughs> because I believe this issue is just too important to avoid. I've had some conversations where I've followed the um, neutral arbitrator approach, and then there have been others when students have asked me, and I've told them. Mm-hmm. And, and and then one last thing, Peter, um, from a practical standpoint for these you know, future full-time teachers, um, how do you think they're, like, will they run into problems? You have to warn them they may run into problems with their principals or school boards if they do reveal their personal opinions? Yes, I have. And, uh, I've, you know, they have, you have, to, you, when I first started teaching, my department head gave me a really good piece of advice. Know your stuff and know your students. And I think if you follow that, and uh, as I say, make sure that this, they know that this is your opinion and that you're not imposing it on anyone. Um, I think they should be okay. Now, this, of course, is by far the biggest elephant in the room that I've seen in quite a few years of teaching. And I can really understand why student teachers, I mean, they're not full-time teachers. It's not their classroom mm-hmm. the same way as, as it is mine. Uh, and they have to be aware of all those things. But 
this is this is a time when when students are they're on social media they're curious about this issue they want to know more about it as i said this is the teachable moment of all teachable moments that i've seen in my career as an educator and i think it would given all those things that you have to be concerned about i think it would be an awful shame to miss out on it you know at a time when Things are so polarized. People have these silos of opinions and information around them. It may be Correct. their teacher in school who gives is is maybe the one source of a alternate or point of view or critical way of looking at, at things. Yeah. So really interesting yep. to hear your guidance, Peter. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Peter Flaherty, professor of education at York University, and he spoke to us from Toronto. Uh, What we're doing this hour on Cross Country Checkup is asking you about difficult conversations you may be having, whether they're at home or work or somewhere else, um, involving the Israel-Hamas war. We have a couple of uh, panelists who uh, think about and work very much on sort of reaching, uh, putting a hand out and and trying to get different people with different points of view together to talk about this. Let's uh, go back to the phone lines right now. Michael Moss is in Ottawa. Hi, Michael. Hi, how are you? Thanks Good. for uh, taking my call. Yeah, and so how, how what what sort of challenges have you been facing in in trying to talk about this? Well, just a quick overview. I'm uh, I have friends and family in Israel, and I've visited visit there a number of times. In fact, uh, as recently as less than a year ago. And uh, um, when you look at the whole situation in Israel regarding the Palestinian people, it's like trying to peel the world's greatest onion. You just, the more sections you peel, the more you discover other problems, which just seem, seem totally unresolvable. But I'm going to bring this to a personal level mm-hmm. and uh, to address your particular uh, question tonight. I have a dear friend, and uh, we have had in the past in-depth conversations regarding the situation and the history of the land and how it affects him personally in the past and what we see for the future. And uh, at the end of the day, we sort of uh, kind of agree to disagree. Now, uh, the events over the past month have been rather shocking. And I have an extremely difficult time speaking to him and touching on the subjects that I feel would be overly sensitive and painful, frankly. So what we do is we kind of end up talking about our grandkids. (laughs) Now, in a way, we've decided, so we get off the phone, and I know that he feels the same way that I do, and that's that we're not really being sincere in a sense. We're not Mm -hmm. really being realistic. And I have a feeling that somehow this is kind of a reflection of the situation that's taking place in Israel and with the the Jewish people and the Palestinian people, the Muslim people, there's this uh, avoidance of the real problems and kind of sweeping things under the rug and hoping they'll go away. Mm -hmm. And all that ever happens is that the problems grow and they get bigger and you end up inevitably with a situation like we're uh, going through now where this thing just kind of exploded. Yeah, And if anything, it puts a solution even further ahead. I have a lot of calls I want to get to, Michael, but I, I, I want yeah. to ask you this, this follow-up. I mean, sure. so, so the, you know, it's, it's problematic to avoid this topic, 
but I, I feel like your assessment and your friend's assessment is that it's problematic to talk about this topic. It's painfully problematic. And I feel for him, I care for this person, and I just think that by having a discussion, and we don't agree on, on a lot of the issues, I, I just think it would, ex- would, would increase the pain that he in particular has to go to firsthand, and the pain that I see as an observer of the situation, uh, you know, from our point of view, from our perspective in Canada, whereas he's living there day to day. So uh, I, I, I avoid it, but it disturbs me, and it disturbs me because I know that he knows that I know. <laughs> you see? I do. He understands I see. that, yeah. he, he knows that I understand the situation, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I know that he knows that I understand the situation. And we, we avoid it. Yeah. But Mike, I, don't, I, I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Michael, thank you very much for calling. Okay. I will put this to our our panelists in a few moments, but I do want to get to uh, another guest right now. A lot of people are having or trying to have these difficult conversations in the workplace. And Moniza Sheikh is an employment lawyer with Levitt Sheikh, and we've reached her in Toronto. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. I'm really interested in hearing your firsthand experience as an employment lawyer, um, because I know that you have been in contact with or heard from workers who have been disciplined for things that they have said in the workplace regarding the Hamas-Israel uh, conflict. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, I absolutely have. I can tell you that, um, you know, my inbox, you know, my LinkedIn messages, in some cases even, you know, my Instagram messages daily. I mean, we're talking 10, 20, 25 messages from individuals, Canadian employees who are saying, I'm either being investigated or I've been terminated, or, you know, I'm, you know, being maligned or isolated in the workplace. People who were, you know, friendly to me in the past are no longer speaking to me. In one case, literally from yesterday, I have an employee complaining that, um, you know, she's been taken off a number of projects. And the only thing that's happened, or the only unique thing that's happened in the last few days is, you know, someone's been doing her social media posts. So this is really on the regular for me Um, as an employment lawyer. I'm seeing a lot of this. And, you know, for the most part, you know, the advice that we give to our clients um, as a firm is there should be no political discussion in the workplace. So it's not really about the conversations that are taking place in the bricks and mortars of the office. It's, you know, social media, because a lot of people have turned to advocacy on social media. And so what do you say to a worker who says to you, um, I am getting punished in the workplace because of things that I've done, not in the office, but on social media? What, uh, what advice do you give them? Well, um, the law in that area is pretty clear, which is if what you do in private, and we could talk a little bit about what qualifies as private, but if what you do in private flies in the face of the core values of the organization that you work for, such that it causes brand damage, then your employer absolutely has the lawful right to action that. So if you're posting something on Twitter, and it always makes me a a chuckle just a little bit when I see, you know, opinions are my own. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fine. But if Mm -hmm. you're a public facing, you know, employee or someone who can easily, easily be attributable, attributed to the organization that you work for in terms of the work that you do, um, you know, simply putting a 
qualifier on there that these opinions are mine simply isn't enough. And so your employer absolutely has the right to curb your right to express yourself freely in the workplace, as long as they're doing so in good faith and consistently. So responding to your employer by saying, well, that was, you know, on my personal Instagram, or that was something I posted on my LinkedIn, or that was something I had posted on my Twitter account. That simply isn't enough because your workplace does extend to all of those social media platforms if you're damaging your employer's uh, your employer's brand. Mm-hmm. And and so you know some people listening might be going, well, don't we have free speech? And you we, we do, do have free speech in Canada, we do. right? You know, we absolutely do. Those are and you know you know what I often say is you know your free speech protections, your right to express yourself freely in a peaceful way as a Canadian citizen is not the same when looking at it from an employment perspective. So mm-hmm. if your employer says, I have the right or I'm going to exercise my right to curb your your ability to express yourself freely, they have to do so in good faith. So mm-hmm. any policy in the workplace, even one that limits your free speech, it has to be rationally connected to the needs of the business. So if your employer says, well, the reason I am going to limit your right to express yourself freely is either one, the comments that you're making um, are discriminatory or, you know, you're vilifying a group of people. And so that sort of discrimination can't be tolerated. Or two, or one and two, it's causing, you know, damage to the business. So although, you know, the comments you're making on their face are not discriminatory, but as a result, you know, we've lost clients, we've lost customers. And so we we have the right to curb what you're saying because it's affecting our business on a good faith basis. Mm-hmm. And I see that happening. And that is permissible at law from the yeah. employer's perspective. Maniza, it's always nice to, to hear your analysis. Thank you very much. No problem. Have a great evening. Maniza Shake, an employment lawyer, and we reached her in Toronto. So an apology to the people who have been waiting patiently on the line. We had so many calls and so much that we wanted to jam in here, but I'm going to actually not go back to the phone lines, but go to our panelists. And a bit of an apology to the two of you as well, uh, Bernie and Janen, because we have about uh, three and a half minutes. So really, we're looking at about 90 seconds from each of you for for last comments. Uh, Sorry about that, but uh, uh, trying to juggle a lot of things here in Janen. Let me begin with you, and you can, uh, you know, sort of uh, comment on anything you want, uh, but a last word to you. I think it's really important for us to remember that in, in North America, both in Canada and the United States, we have to continue to build these bridges. We have to continue to lean into the hard conversation. We have to continue to figure out, you know, how it is that we show care and also cooperate in civic society to strengthen our, our respective civic societies. At the same time, it's also important for us to know that this conversation is not something that you do on the fly. It's not something that you can kind of step into without preparation, without training, without considering all of the um, the self-knowledge that you need about yourself, but also about um, the communities that you're engaging with. So I would just um, tell people to really take care and to actually invest in building their skills of, um, of listening, building their skills of thinking about how to their story, how to engage with the story of someone else they may deeply disagree with, and to, to lean into those spaces with care and cooperation. All right, Janine, thank you very much. Bernie, uh, two minutes, last word to you. Well, <clears throat> pragmatically, Janine is uh, 100% correct, but in terms of what faces us right here, right now, um, I, I lean more towards your, your guest, Michael, who I think really, in, in, in this space that, that we had, hit 
the proverbial nail right on the proverbial head. Um, we all feel, we all want to have these conversations. We all understand the dangers of having these conversations and the pain that, that follows. Um, Peter, the uh, professor from, from York University, mentioned his three points. I, I have to respectfully disagree with the concept of a teacher giving a personal opinion within a month of a school year, uh, especially a student teacher, um, where that may in fact leave a, a student or a child to feel that his space or her space is no longer safe. Um, such great care has to be taken in, in, in these conversations because the, the pain is not just, um, you know, out in outer space someplace, the pain is there and present. And, you know, just two quick stories, if, if I can. Ian. Well, we've got the a minute, so maybe, being, maybe one quick story. Yeah. I will do it in 30 seconds. Okay. Um, my personal connection to this was that a dear friend of ours, the daughter of a dear friend of ours, was murdered on, uh, on a kibbutz in Israel in front of her two children. Hmm. So that then became a personal piece for me. The second piece is, is exceedingly different. When, when the war broke out and hostilities broke out and anti-Semitism and Islamophobia arose and there was a, a, a plan by the Muslim and Palestinian community to march in Toronto down Shepherd Avenue on a Sabbath uh, to Yorkdale Shopping Center, I was contacted by the Jewish leadership and said, can you be in touch with anybody? And so I called a very dear friend of mine in the Muslim community and, and we had a chat and, and I, uh, I explained to him, you have this right and you must go out and you must protest. But this is a provocation. Is there any way that the route can be changed? This is a kind of a dialogue, Ian, that, that we did have. The route was changed. But that's because I had a 30-year friendship uh, you know, with, with, with this particular individual and we were able to put the rest aside to talk about what's in the present. So all, right. all to say, we have a lot of work to do. And all to say, it's been very nice hearing from both of you and uh, and listening to your guidance uh, and wisdom. Uh, Bernie Farber, former CEO of the Canadian Jewish Congress, and Janen Mohajer is the Vice President of External Affairs of the nonprofit Interfaith America. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from November 19th, 2023. If you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Chuck Mulgat, Kiata Greco, and Katrina McGaughy. Special thanks to Aronde Williams and Walter Rinaldi. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Garth Godfried, Josh Raxa, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing by Will Yar and Matthias Wilson. Our program assistant is Hannah Abrahamsey. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Plenner, Ashley Fraser, and Steve Howard. Our digital producer, Paul Hanschiak. The senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard, and I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Check Up the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.